All right, we're starting a new series called Walking the Labyrinth Together. Um, this is a team collaboration, so um, I'm preaching today, and then the other pastors, the other three, they're going to be taking over after this week, so, you know, you guys are going to get a variety of, of preachers, so th- that's a really good thing. Um, so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this theme called Walking the Labyrinth Together, and we'll talk about labyrinth in a few minutes, um, but accompanying this, there's also a weekly devotional that comes with it. And uh, so what that means is every week we'll send out a little sheet of paper, a PDF, out to the people who want it. And the way you're going to sign up for this is through your app, through the Bulletin Plus app. So what you're going to do is there's a little link uh, in like maybe a few, maybe one or two announcements down where you can actually sign up. You put your name and your email address and you'll get these things updated, sent to you every week. So we highly recommend that you guys do that. Um, so that you can follow along and, you know, for some of you, you take Lent season very se- seriously and this, that might be a good way of, of going through Lent season. So uh, just so that you know, there's that option for you guys if you're interested. So <clears throat> I want to start off by talking something that's more culturally relevant to the Old Testament di- days. When I ask you, describe God to me, most of you, because we're mostly Westerners, most of you will use words like, oh, he's all-powerful or he is good. These are descriptors, right? In the Old Testament, especially in the Eastern culture, they don't use descriptors. They use imagery. So when they say, describe God to me, they'll say, oh, he is a rock. Or he is a shepherd. They use images instead of descriptors. And so if, if, somebody, if we would time travel back in those days and you said, you know, God is good, they'll say, oh, we haven't heard that before. They, they, they know what it means, but it's not common for them to describe God that way. Describing God, they usually use images and visuals because that's just how they thought. That's just how their brains were wired. And so today, we're going to be looking more at that because this is, uh, this is the intro to the series. Just the intro part, we're going to talk about the, the visual aspect of how we describe God. And in doing so, what I really want to tackle today is this. How am I doing spiritually? How am I doing spiritually? Because when I ask you, hey, how are you doing spiritually? Some of you will say, well, uh, I, I go to church every Sunday. Oh, um, I think I'm a good Christian. Or I think, um, you know, and you start using words that people probably wouldn't use in the biblical days. Like in the Bible, you don't see people using phrases or measurements like, I went to church, you know, every Sunday this past year. I'm a good Christian. Like you won't see things like that in the Bible because that's not, that's not the way that they were wired. That's not the way they saw and how th- that's not how they measure spirituality back then. Back then, they would talk about, like, their, their commune with God. Like, they, they would talk about their closeness to God, not in terms of, like, number, like, on a scale of 1 and 10. You know, I think I'm, like, a 7 today, and yesterday I was, like, a 10, but, you know, I kind of fell back. They won't even use words like, I backslid. I think a lot of Christians use those words, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to be, I used to be tight with God, but now I'm kind of backslid. They didn't use words like that because in their minds, they're not thinking of a scale, they're thinking more in terms of visuals. And so today I want to talk about visuals and how we could decide how we are doing spiritually by using these visuals. So the earliest version of a visual that we could think about, according to scripture, is this idea of a tabernacle. Now, some of you guys are like, I heard of a tabernacle before, but I'm not really sure what a tabernacle is. I'll give you uh, um, some pictures later, okay? But I want to give you an idea of how important tabernacles were in the Old Testament. Altogether in the Old Testament, there's close to 50 chapters devoted to how a tabernacle should be built, what you should do in a tabernacle, people actually building tabernacle, people hanging out in the tabernacle area. There's about 50 chapters of building tabernacles. In comparison, creation of the, of the world, of the universe, two chapters. 
right? So you could kind of get an idea that God really wanted to devote a lot of chapters in the Bible on how to build this tabernacle. A tabernacle is like a glorified, over-glorified tent. Okay, so I want to give you an idea of how important this was to God. So I'm going to take a look at Exodus 25. This is God talking to Moses about the tabernacle. Then have them, you know, Moses, your followers, <clears throat> make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. I want you to make a little place where people could worship me. Okay, and I'm going to come and dwell in there. Like, yeah, I know I am in all places at all times, but I want people to know that if they really want to experience me, this is a place I want them to go. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of descriptors. You know, like, make sure you do it this way. Make sure you have this color. Make sure you use this material. And I want you to do it exactly as I told you. Okay, so I'm not going to go over all the descriptions of what God told him to do, okay? But I will show you some diagrams. So here's the diagram of what it looks like. That's what it will look like on the top left. Right there is like a, like a sky view, if you look down. And the entrance is the gate over here on, on your right. Okay, so uh, we don't have a tabernacle anymore, okay? But in a place called Timnah, which is like mostly desert, somebody actually took the time to, to replicate it based on what he read in the scriptures. So I want to show you what that looks like. <clears throat> That's what it looks like. On the right, I put that same blueprint over there so you guys know where we are as we go through the tabernacle, okay? Now, keep in mind, everything here, God just told them to build without them knowing exactly what these things meant. So what I want you to do is pretend like you're a person who's walking into the tabernacle for the first time, okay? And think of the visuals that you see and what it reminds you of. And I'll also give you examples of what the people back then might have thought of, okay? So first, we're going to start from the gate. So next slide. Now, we don't know if this is exactly what it looked like. We know the colors that were required. There's red, blue, purple. And purple was a very interesting color because, I mean, where do you get purple dye, right? So, so the minute they walk in or about to walk in, they look at the gate. They look at it and say, like, wow, I haven't seen these colors before. And not only that, this gate is always instructed to face east. So imagine it's dark outside early in the morning, and you can't wait to hang out with God. You're coming to the gate Okay, it's not the gate that you think of. It doesn't open like, you know, there's no hinges. Okay, it's just a curtain. <clears throat> you stand there, and then the sun starts to rise. And the sun s starts to, to shine on the gate. And before the sun sh shone on the gate, it was just black. But now you see colors, and you see vibrant colors that you haven't seen before in your life. And you're like, this is just so beautiful. And so at this point, you're thinking, the first thing that the sun shines its light on is the entrance to God's presence. And so immediately you start getting these visuals. What does this mean? That God is a light in the darkness. Like these are things that people think about, right? By the way, this is the only entrance, even though it's like a rectangle, the only entrance is this one gate. And so for that reason, they had a nickname for this gate. They call it the way, just so you guys know. All right, so once you enter, okay, <clears throat> you go into the next part. Now you're by the first square right there. And I don't know, gosh, you can't see that. That's what we call the altar. This is where they would ca come and bring their animals. Now, it was common <coughs> practice back then to bring in an animal as a way as an offering. Some people translate the word offering as sacrifice, but the word is actually better translated as offering. It's not like we're trying to kill something on, in place of something else. Eventually it becomes that. But at this point, it's like, I want to bring a gift to God to show how pr happy I am to see him today. So he, they bring in a, a cow or a sheep or whatever they had on their present. Well, they didn't have cows back then. I mean, they did, but... It wasn't part of the Israelite group. So they had sheep, and they brought goats. They brought it in, and they would offer it. They would kill the goat or, the, or the, whatever animal it is, okay? And if 
you know, and they, pl they, they place it on top of the altar. Now, if you want to know what the top of the altar looks like, it looks like this. Okay, this is like a barbecue grill. Right there is the grill. Okay, underneath they have a lot of charcoal, and there, God was very specific as to make sure that the, that the rocks that they used were not cut, that they were just naturally formed. So, you know, and they would heat it up, and they would cook it, you know, and they would see the smoke rise to the heavens, and they would say, ah, God is, like, pleased with the barbecue for today, right? But at the same time, there's interesting uh, um, instructions with this altar. One of the things they do is if you come to God and you feel guilty about something, you did something wrong, and you're like, I'm not worthy of being in presence of God, <clears throat> they said that you're supposed to take the blood of the sacrifice, of the offering, and you're supposed to put it on one of the four corners. Those are horns. They're not made of real horns. It's the whole thing is made out of bronze, as God instructed it. The inside of it is made out of acacia wood, and then it's plated with pounded gold, uh, uh, um, uh, copper. And they took the blood and they put it on the horn. And it, it, just imagine what that feels like to you. You've never seen a horn on an altar before. You've only seen horns on animals. How many horns do animals usually have? Two. And so they're thinking, why does this have four? Because in that culture, horns represented power. And so as they're at the altar, they're looking at the four horns, and they're like, you know what? This reminds me of how powerful God is, that God is so strong that he has four horns. <laughs> you know, it's like strength in numbers, I guess, right? And they would take the blood of the animal, and they put it there. And as they look at the animal bleed and die, they're like, wait a minute. This kind of reminds me of how maybe that's the price that I have to pay in order to come to God, is that God is so good, and I'm so not that it actually requires the death of an animal for me to come to God. And so these are images that are starting to flood into their minds as they're partaking in these rituals that God has set up for them. So <clears throat> as they do that, right, they move to the next station, which is the next part is that circle right there, which is, is made, that's made out of bronze. It's the purest form of bronze that they could come across. Back in those days, they didn't have mirrors. They used pieces of metal. And the metal they used as a mirror, the best version they had was bronze. And so it was the nicest bronze they had. They took all the bronze that the camp had and they melted it together and they made that little bowl where they would put water in it. That was a cleansing station. They would go there, they take a ladle and they'll pour their hands and they make sure their hands are clean, probably to clean their hands from the sacrifice they just offered. <clears throat> but as they wash their hands, they're reminded of a few things. That we need to be clean before we enter into the tent of God. Or maybe they look into the bowl and they see their own reflection and it reminds them who they are. Do you see how they're very visual and it's open to interpretation? And that was the intention of God. God set up all these things in instructions so that you'll be reminded of certain visuals. Maybe the smell of the animal being burnt reminded you of something. You know, maybe the colorful, you know, cloth that's around the place reminds you of something. You know, all these things remind you of something. And that was the intention behind all this. So next, you could go, <clears throat> so, so now uh, if you look at the diagram right there, you see there's a big rectangle in the middle, and we're about to approach that. But before you approach that, there's another gate there. And that gate has five pillars. And those five pillars reminded people of the five books of Moses, which is called the Torah. And so they call that the truth gate. So we went from the way gate to the truth gate, and there's one more gate, and that's called a life gate. So when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He was making a reference to the tabernacle slash temple system, saying, if you really want to come to the presence of God, you have to go through these gates, and guess what? I am that representation. If you want to come to know God, you have to come through me. So you can see even Jesus uses these imageries to give people an idea, this image in their brain of what, you know, what it's like to, you know, what God is like and what they're like. 
But here's the thing. As they come and start discovering more and more about God, they start to be reminded of who they are. Like the first station, maybe I'm not worthy to come see God. As they come to the bowl of water, they, they look at the reflection and realize, you know, like, oh, am I, am I the image of God that he intended me to be? You know, so all these things remind them of who God is and who they are. But when they enter into the middle rectangle, another thing happens. Because that middle rectangle area, the, the actual tent inside the, the, the fence, only a few select people can enter that. And the people who enter that are called priests. And so the people who enter into the center area, oh, by the way, the area that we're in right now is called the court. Okay, remember that. We'll talk about that later, the court. <clears throat> As you enter from the court into the actual tent, you have to be a priest. And a priest is a representative of everybody who's on the outside. So as you enter in, you start thinking about the relationships you have with the people around you. So now, first we're thinking about God, now you're thinking about yourself, and now you're thinking about your neighbors. You're thinking about the people around you. <coughs> now let's go into the tent. So now we're in here, and when you go in there, you'll see three main things. Oh, that's not a person. That's a dummy. He's, that's the priest garment. And God gives detailed instructions on what you're supposed to wear. For example, the like, priest is wearing a little breastplate with 12 pieces of jewelry on it. And the 12 tr- jewelry represents the 12 tribes of Israel. That means their nation, right? So again, as he goes in, he's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about his whole nation, that he's here on behalf of, you know, so all that stuff. But we're going to go over each of the three things that's in this room, okay? So let's start from the right, which is the next one. This is called the showbread or the bread of presence, whichever way you want to translate it. <clears throat> the showbread is an interesting thing because this, <coughs> there's 12 loaves, I think that look like pancakes, those are pieces of bread. It was really flat, round. There's 12 of them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And this is interesting. In most temples at that time in the world, what people would do is they'll come and offer something like bread to remind them that their God is a provider, and they'll just leave it there until it molds, and then they toss it out. But not this, not, not this group of people. You know what they did? They left it there for a week, and then they'll come back to it, and they realize that it's still fresh, and at that point, the priests, they start to eat it. Why do the priests eat it? That's part of God's instructions. Because they wanted to be reminded that we offer this to you, God, as a way of saying thank you, but we need to be reminded that we're not the providers. You are. You are the one that provides for us, so that's why we eat. So as they're eating, they're being reminded that in the desert, while they were hungry, God provided for them every single day, with, and no one went hungry. That, you know, that no matter how doubtful we are of the times that we're in right now, God is always provided. So again, it's a reminder of who God is and how dependent we are for the daily bread that God offers us. Next in the center, we have this. <coughs> this is the, the altar of incense. So again, it's like a little barbecue grill again, but this time you don't put meat on it. What you do is you put incense on it. And as you pour it in, the room starts to fill with smoke. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, the smoke smells really good. And this is the part where they start to pray. And they believe that if we prayed as we are pouring incense on here and the sweet smell starts to rise to the, and fills the room, that God would accept their prayers better because God loves the sweet aroma of prayer. So as they pray and pour in this, you know, fragrance into the room, they're reminded that to God, our prayer requests, it is something that God wants. That to God, it is a pleasure to hear our prayers, that it makes him smile when we pray to him that he wants us to ask him for things, and God wants to hear 
our prayers, our shouts of maybe sometimes when we cry to God, he wants to hear that from us. And to the very left of the room, we see this. This is a candlestick holder. It's called a menorah. This is actually a picture from a, from a, um, a museum. This is the oldest version of the actual menorah that we have. And <clears throat> it's about the height of my chest. It's pretty big. And the description that God gives the, the Israelites to build on this, this menorah right here is that it has to look like a tree. That's why it really looks like it has branches coming out. And there's pieces of fruit in the gold. By the way, this thing is pure gold. So it's really, really heavy. Okay, so they have pieces of, you know, there's, they have pieces of like almonds and stuff like that that's, that's um, painted, in, uh, um, that's uh, molded onto the, to the menorah to remind them that maybe when they're looking at it, they're like, oh man, this is kind of like, oh, this is like the tree, oh, this is like the tree of life. This is like the garden of Eden. And so they're reminded that we used to, we came from paradise and we lost paradise and that our mission is always to restore paradise. And of course, you light the room because the room is really dark by lighting the candlesticks on top of it all, right? And for some people, they look at it and say, you know what this reminds me of? If it's a tree with fire on top of it and it doesn't go out, this reminds me of the burning bush. And so they're looking like, wow, this is like being, like, this is like the experience that Moses had. So do you see all these images that are starting to pop up? Everybody's making these interpretations and God intended it to be that way because they knew, he knew that everybody back then thought visually. And then, we face the final curtain, the life, here we go, this is the life, uh, this, we call it the veil, it's a very thick piece of cloth, and now the room is filled in smoke, and so they're like, okay, whatever's on the other side, I know I can't see clearly, and that's a good thing back then, because they know that on the other side of that curtain is the presence of God, and they don't want to see God's presence with their naked eye, so that's why they have all that smoke in the room now, and so as they open up the, the gate, or the curtain, they draw the curtain, they go inside, and they only see one item in there, and that's what this this is right here. This is the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who love Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I want to share with you one thing they got wrong. I know. Movie Hollywood got it wrong. So um, <clears throat> the Ark is composed of two parts. Well, there's three if you count the poles that are coming through on the side. But there's the lid and the actual box. Okay. This is what Indiana Jones got it wrong. You know when they opened the thing and all these things came out of it because they believed the presence of God was in it? In the scriptures, they make it very, very clear that God is not in the box. It's not God in a box. It's actually, the top, the top part right there, the lid, is called the mercy seat. It's actually a chair. It doesn't look like a chair, but that's what they call it. They call it a mercy seat with two angels, cherubims, hovering over it. They believe that God dwelled right in that open space in the middle, that he would float. His presence would float between the two cherubims right there in the middle. And as the story would tell us, Moses sat in the holy, this room is called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. He sat there and just listened to God as he wrote down the laws of God. Now, if you open the box, inside you'll find three items. You'll find the Ten Commandments, you'll find a jar of manna, and you'll find the staff that Aaron used. And so you start thinking like, oh, this is kind of interesting. So let your your imagination go wild. So at this point you're thinking, wow, God is above the law. There's this one rabbinical saying, which I can't make sense of. Maybe you could help me. So I'll tell it to you, and then you can tell me later what you think it means. But they, they said that the box is made out of, according to God's instructions, it's made out of gold plate on the outside, on the inside, and in between, it's acacia wood. So they would say, this is purified gold, so it represents purity. They're like, with God's word in me, the inside of me is as gold, it's pure. The outside of me, and the way I treat other people, is pure. 
But we can't forget the fact that we're wood inside, which I, that's the part I don't understand. But I think it's supposed to humble us or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's another example of people taking the imagery that God set for us and, and letting that, just sitting in the presence, just letting us, just soaking it in and saying, wow, this is amazing. What, you know, and you come up with these, all these ideas of what God is like. <clears throat> so let's go to the next screen, which is the same screen you saw before. And so there's a, other things that people looked at and they realized. For example, if you remember in the, ten, uh, in the story, in the Exodus story early on, Moses went up the mountain called Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, right? And in this Ten Commandments story, they took the Ten Commandments and they saw it as a marriage contract. And so as they realize that this is a marriage contract, they look at the tabernacle that God set up for them and they realize, you know, this is kind of like a home where on the outside is where we all hang out. And then you go into the holy place. That's the second place we looked at, which is like a very, like a family room. And then the holy of holies, the most holy place, that's like the bedroom where we spend our intimate moments with our husband or with our wives. And so they looked at it as like, wow, God wants to marry us. That's one imagery that some some of the Jews came up with back then. Another image is like, they would say like, hey, remember when Moses went up that mountain to Mount Sinai? You remember what he did? Before he went up, he offered a sacrifice and then he washed his hands. He went through a cleansing ritual. Then he went up the mountain and then there was a lot of smoke and God spoke to him. It's like, isn't that the same here? They're like, yeah, and there was lightning, there was you know, bright lights and stuff like that. It's like, this is exactly, this is a portable Sinai experience. So for a lot of people, they saw this, their interpretation of this image right here, imagery, is that God wants to meet with us in the way that Moses met with, met with God in an intimate way every day of the week. Other people would go in and say, no, 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 look, look at this. This, this menorah looks like the tree of life. Actually, they started calling it the tree of life. It's like, this looks like the tree of life. And if you look at some of the other imageries around here, I don't know if you noticed, but on one of the gates, on one of the curtains, there were, picked, there were drawings of, or I think they cut it out and they, you know, sewed it on. But it's images of cherubims on the wall. And there's the tree of life. And they're like, this is just like the tree of, the, this is just like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve got, cut, got kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they, God put an angel, a cherubim there to make sure with a flaming sword so they don't come back in. This is just like the Garden of Eden. And so to them, this is like a portable Eden wherever they go. And so to them, there's all these imageries that starts floating their brains and they, they're like, this is so cool. Like, it keeps speaking to us. We, every time we come here, we find something new. This is how they thought back then. And as they discovered more about God, they discovered more about who they were. And they discovered more of who they were, they started realizing what the relationship with the people around them were. So not were they only discovering new things about God, they were discovering new things about them and themselves, and they were discovering more things about the people around them and the way they should relate to them. One of the insights that people had about the garden, of, of, of the tabernacle, is actually written in one of our psalms. Let's take a look at Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. The dwelling place would be the tabernacle, the holy of holies. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So just imagine, there's this guy who's writing this song. He's outside in the courtyard, the court area, the court of the tabernacle. He can't go in because he's not a priest, but he knows he's in there. And he says, my heart yearns, and I'm even willing to faint. I'm just going gaga. I'm going crazy that I just know that God is in that tent right there, and I'm not allowed to go in there. I could only hang out in the court area. Then he says, even sparrows, <coughs> next slide, even the sparrows have found a home and the so a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and God. He's saying, 
This has been here for a while, so much, so long, that we actually have birds that are nesting here. And look, they're laying eggs. And then the, 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 the psalmist, he's thinking this, he's like, this is just like the Garden of Eden, where there's animals and people and God, we're all hanging out together. This is so cool. Like he's like, is this like, is this paradise? Is this heaven on earth? Oh my gosh. And so he's just writing this song. He's singing out loud. And then we're going to go to the next verse, verse four. He says this, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. He says, even the birds, when they chirp, they're going, tweet, 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 tweet. It's like, I bet you, I don't, I don't speak bird, but I bet you even that bird right now is singing praise songs to God right now. And here I am singing praise songs to God. And so are the people out of the camp praising, praising God. It's like all of creation is, is singing praises to you forever and ever. It's like this is paradise. This is exactly where I want to be. And then we're going to skip to verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He's like, I can't go into the tent, the holy of holies where God is. I'm out here in the courts but I would much rather be here than anywhere else in the world. Then he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper, meaning a person who pulls the, you know, it's like you're a peg, basically. You're, you're holding the curtain open for other people to go in. He's like, I would rather be that in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. He's like, if I want to be inside of a tent, there's the thousands of other tents I could go into. But I would rather be outside of a tent God's tent than be inside of anybody else's tent. This is something that he realized about himself as he was walking through the tabernacle. He's looked around and he said, you know what I realized? That the thing that I really want more than anything in the world, more than shelter, is to be as close as I can to God. That's what he discovered about himself. What he discovered is this. As you walk, as you walk deeper into the tabernacle, you became more aware of who you are your relationship to God, and your relationship to others. That's how the whole system was designed. God gave these really intricate details on how to build and what material to use and, you know, all that kind of stuff, what colors, because he wanted people to look around and realize their relation, these three things, where you stand with God, where you stand with yourself, and where you stand with others. Your vertical relationship, your horizontal relationship, and your relationship with yourself. Now, the tabernacle, which was a portable, you know, tent, right? I guess all tents are portable, right? Eventually, they found a place to dwell, which is the land that we call Israel today. And they went to the mountain called Jerusalem. Well, now it's called Jerusalem. It, wasn't, it was called Mount Zion back then. They went up Mount Zion, and they decided to build a city called Jerusalem. In the center of Jerusalem, they decided to make a permanent version of a tabernacle, which is called the temple. And we're going to skip a lot of temple history right now, and we're going to jump over to the days that Jesus died and rose again. He's there, right? And if you understand... Um, tabernacle imagery you'll understand some of the things like you know when they say that veil was torn when jesus died on the cross you know you'll you'll that's your homework you look into that you'll see so much richness there but eventually the whole world became popular with christians we're jumping thousands of years right here okay the whole world became popular with christians and in the early thousands so until the year 1000 people will pilgrimage their way to jerusalem to the temple even though they weren't allowed into the holy of holies they would go to the court and they would worship at least once a year that was their custom because to the early Christians, they understood the value of the imagery that they're, you know, as they walk into the temple, they would say like, wow, look how big it is. God must be really big, you know, so they would do that. But then around 1100 to 1300, the crusades happened. Are you guys familiar with the crusades? 
really dark part in our, our Christian history where people use violence to persuade people to follow Jesus. Bad idea. But because of the violence and all the chaos that was going on, a lot of people could not make that pilgrimage anymore. And there was one specific church or group of believers in France who said, we want to go to Jerusalem for an annual pilgrimage, but we can't. Can we build a tabernacle or a tent here? And they're like, that's kind of sacrilegious. Like, we can't build our own menorah. That's, like, wrong. <laughs> we can't do that. It's like, well, can we use something else to create a similar experience? And at the time in France, there was a, there was a cathedral called the Cathedral of, I think it's pronounced Chartres, C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S. I, I don't do French. Okay, so, okay. <clears throat> and recently that building burnt down. And so they had to rebuild it. And as they're rebuilding it, they're like, hey, let's not make it into a rectangle, but let's, let's make it into a shape of a cross. So when God looks down on this building, they see a cross. Like, yeah, let's do that. And in the middle, let's create our version of a tabernacle, and we're going to call it this. It's going to be called the labyrinth. So here's a picture of the, the cathedral. That's what it looks like. It's majestic. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And if you go inside, you'll find this. This is a labyrinth. <coughs> it looks like... The small intestines, I know, right? <laughs> but, but you're like, oh, that looks like a maze. It's like, yes, but no, it's not a maze. And the reason why it's not a maze is because of this. This is a quote from one of the leading experts on the whole idea of a labyrinth. A maze is designed for one to get lost. A labyrinth is designed to find oneself. So it's in the middle of the room, uh, of the big cathedral, right? It's not, in, you know, and so everybody's watching you. And as you saw in the previous picture, you saw people walking around. This is what it looks like from above. This is like a drawn version of it. This is what it looks like. As you notice, there's only one entrance, right? But multiple people are allowed to partake in it. And as you go through here, there's only one path. There's no split path, so you can't get lost, okay? Unless you forget if you're going forward or backwards. That's a separate issue. But you go all the way to the center, and then you walk your way back out the same path you came in. And if there's multiple people going through this at the same time, chances are you're going to bump into somebody, right? But that's part of the design. Okay, so I'll give you an example of what, this, what it would feel like for me to walk through this labyrinth. Okay, so, so since today's St. Patrick's Day, it's green. Okay, so let's say you enter. You're about to enter, and you're overwhelmed. And you stop, and you ask yourself, why am I feeling overwhelmed? It's like, this is kind of like life. I see the center because there's no walls. You're like, there's a center right there of the labyrinth. I know where I want to get to, but I just feel like there's just so many, like, I'm just feeling overwhelmed. And so you walk in, and you're going towards the, the center, but then you're stopped because the path goes to the left. And you're like, uh, okay, well, I want to get there, but I have to go this way. I guess I'll go this way. And you start walking the way they're supposed to go. Next slide. So you get to about here, and you're like, oh, look, the goal is right there. It's so close to me. But this path isn't leading me to the center. What is God trying to tell me right now? That many times our focus is on the goal. Maybe God is telling me that the journey is more important than the goal. Maybe that's what God's, may, it might be a different lesson for you guys. But for me, as I was trying to visualize myself walking through here, I was thinking, wow, maybe God is teaching me that the journey is more important than the destination. Maybe that's what God's telling me. It might be different for you. And as you walk, and you're like, okay, I'm going to walk around the goal. Then this happens. You start walking around and around and around. And you're like, this is such a tease. Like, I see the goal right there, and I can't get there. And as you get to the end, you're like, wait a minute. I feel like I'm starting to walk away from the goal. God, are you sure you're leading me in the right direction? Again, you might have another thought at that point. Maybe at this point, 
you're meeting somebody that's coming back from the center and you're like, hey, this person has been where I want to get. He's ahead in this journey, that, like, he's way ahead in this journey than where I am right now. And you realize maybe that's what God is trying to teach me, that there are other people in this world who have been to places that you haven't been yet. And look at them. They came out fine. It's going to be fine. I'm not alone on this journey. I'm going to be fine. And so you walk through the journey, and eventually you get to this part. Next slide, right? And now you're at the outer perimeter area. You're about to enter the, per- the outside, and you're like, I have never felt so far from my goal in my life. As a matter of fact, the next stretch is the part where it's the longest path without any turns. And maybe at this point you're walking, you're like, you know, that's what I feel like right now in my life. I feel like my life is so predictable. It's almost boring. I wish there was some turns in my life, but I feel like I'm just on this one path that has no left or right. It's like, is this what God is trying to tell me that this is the stage in my life right now that I just need to focus on being present even if it's boring to me? Like, is this what God is teaching me? But all along, right, as you're going through this whole thing in the cathedral, on the far end, there's a huge cross that's staring at you. And you're like, even though I feel like I don't know what I'm doing in my life, God has the upper hand. He sees exactly where I am right now. Maybe that's the inspiration you get from this labyrinth. The labyrinth is designed, kind of like the tabernacle, to speak to you at every moment, and you think visually. What is God trying to teach me right now about who he is, who I am, and who I come across along that journey? There's four things that the labyrinth is supposed to teach us. Okay, here's the first thing. It helps us understand our journey. This is where I am in my life right now. Oh, you know, my life feels kind of chaotic, just kind of like this part right here. Like, it's supposed to help you understand who you are your relationship to yourself. The second thing is that you start to understand <laughs> your journey with others. You come across somebody and you realize, oh, this person's further ahead in this journey. Or you look back and you're like, oh, that guy's just starting his journey. It's like, it's okay. You're going to survive. It's just paint on the ground. Don't worry about it. You know, like, whatever it is, you, th- you start to learn how to deal with other people. Right? But, at the same time, you, you, some people are walking slower on this journey and you're walking faster and you start to, you, they're not coming against you. You're going on the same journey, but they come alongside you and you realize, this guy's a lot slower than me. I need to get around this guy or should I just take my time as I wait for this guy? To, you know, like you start to learn more about who you are, right? <clears throat> but then you also discover that there's people who are on the same path who are very different than you. And so you start to understand the differences that you have with others. How do I navigate through my life? How do I relate to people who are very different? How do I relate to people who have a different pace than me? People who are faster than me, who are slower than me, people who are short-tempered, people who, are, who seem really passive in everything they do. How do I deal with people like that? And God reveals to you more and more of how you're supposed to do that. And then finally, through the labyrinth, you discover your depth. You start to discover things about you that you probably wouldn't have understood about yourself until you actually, actually walked through the labyrinth. You walk through it, and you're like, you know what? I didn't know this about me, but I'm actually pretty short-tempered. Or I, I realize I'm actually very controlling. Or maybe it's a good thing, you know, like, oh, I didn't realize I'm so cool. You know? <laughs> but whatever it is, you discover more about yourself that you wouldn't have discovered before. There's a depth that you discover. This labyrinth, just like the tabernacle, is a tool. It is a tool that God has given you, has given us to help us assess our spiritual health. 
How are you doing today? So you're not going to say, well, today um, I went to church, so I guess I'm doing spiritually well. I read the Bible yesterday. I guess I'm doing well. That's not how you measure it. That is a tool that God has given you, just like the labyrinth and the, the tabernacle, but that's not the only way we measure ourselves. Because with a labyrinth and the tabernacle, it helps us assess who we are, how we're doing right now. <coughs> and like I said, it's only a tool. This is why you don't find in the New Testament examples of people walking through a labyrinth or people walking through the tabernacle. Because in, in those days, they used different tools. In the New Testament, pe- the tools that God used were people like Paul the Apostle. He would ask really hard questions in which the people who read it are like, by answering these questions, we're actually dealing with self-assessment where we have to deal with certain things that we don't want to deal with. I'll give you one quick example because we we're running out of time um, of that, okay? For homework, read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a church in Corinth where people are not getting along with each other. And Paul says, there's one way to know, like there's one tool I'm going to give you that's going to help you understand where you are spiritually that's going to help you s- figure this thing out, okay? And he says, pay attention to who eats meat and who doesn't eat meat. They're like, what? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Paul basically says the reason why people aren't getting along with each other is because your maturity level are all in different places. What do you mean by that, Paul? He's like, let me explain. So there are pagan temples in the nearby area who take meats and they sacrifice it to their gods, right? Meanwhile, the Christians over here are saying, I can't believe they're doing that. That's so gross. Like, they're pagans, right? And these people over here are like, no, this is our religion. We're doing our thing. But what they discover is after they offer the meat to the sac- sacrifice to, to, to their gods, the meat, nothing happens to the meat. And to make ends meet, these idol worshipers are like, uh, maybe we should put this out on the market and sell it because then, then we can make some profit. But we have to, you know, cut the price because people don't want to buy meat that's sacrificed to I- idols. You being a brand new Christian are going to the marketplace and like, oh my gosh, what a deal. This is better than Costco. I'm going to buy this piece of meat, cook it up, and serve it to my friends. And he, Paul says, that's level one Christianity, where you're not even concerned about anything. You don't really think about it, about the implications of it. You just buy it because it's on sale, right? That's level one. And there's this, this level two Christians who look at it and who eventually start thinking. They're like, wait a minute. Even though it's on sale, this meat was used for the purpose of sacrificing to gods that we think are destructive, Maybe we shouldn't partake in it. So he says, level two Christians are the ones who say, I'm not going to eat the meat because it was given to idols. So he's using the way that we, we treat meat as a way. It's like a tabernacle or a labyrinth. They're using it as a tool to assess where they are in their spiritual journeys, okay? And he's saying, there's a group of people who actually think and say, I don't want to eat meat because even, th- even though it's a steal, you know, I don't want to eat it because it's actually dedicated to that God and I don't want that. Okay, so that's level two. Level three Christians in the level, you know, order of maturity, are the Christians who look at the situation and say, wait a minute, it's on sale, I understand that, and it was sacrificed to idols, so I'm not going to partake in it, but now I understand, as I follow Jesus, I realize that other gods aren't real gods at all. Like, I don't even think that, that whatever gods they're sacrificing to, are. I think they're just mythologies, I don't believe in it. So there is no harm in taking the meat and eating it, so level three are kind of similar to level one, where you're taking the meat and eating it, but you thought it through and realized that, well, my, I only worship God, Yahweh, Jesus. That's all I worship. And so I shouldn't have to fear that it was used for other purposes. So that's level three. Like you think all things are permissible because Jesus died for everything, you know, that his sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice. And he says, that's great. Level three is great, but there's the ultimate highest level, level four. You've been in all these stages before and you know that you could eat anything you want. 
but you realize that there are three levels of maturity before you, and you realize, I know I could eat this. I have the freedom to eat it because I believe that Jesus is the only God, right? But by me eating it, I might cause some of these people who are still young in their walks to stumble. Meaning, I have every right to eat this, but because the ultimate goal is to love my neighbor, the loving thing for me to do is to abstain from eating this meat, at least in front of them. And Paul says, that is the highest level of maturity in the Christian walk. What he's saying is, the meat that you eat is like a tabernacle. It's like a labyrinth. It's something that you use to assess where you are in your spiritual journey. And as you look back at it, you'll discover, maybe I need to abstain from doing certain things because, you know, so you start to discover your relationship with other people. You're dis- you discover your relationship with God. You discover where you are in your spiritual journey. And every, so you start discovering the depths of who you are. You discover all four things that the, that the labyrinth will d- reveal to you because it's just a tool. This tool is helping us assess who we are, where we stand with God, where we stand with others, and who we are deep inside. What Paul is saying is this. Mature followers of Jesus must take an inventory of their spiritual journeys. You must. And so for the coming weeks, <coughs> we're going to be looking at all four of those things. We're going to learn to understand who we are, where we stand with others, how we stand with people, and how we get along with people who are different than us, and we're going to discover the depths of who we are. And the tools that we're going to give you is not a labyrinth because we don't have a space to make a labyrinth here, right? We can't build a tabernacle because we can't do that. <laughs> Uh, but what we're going to do is we have found some tools that's going to help us. It's like some survey, some tests that you could take that will help you understand who, what kind of person you are. And by doing so, maybe you'll discover how you can relate to the people around you. Okay, and don't worry. We're not going to share your results with everybody. Okay, this is just for you so you know who you are. Okay, and so that's going to start next week. So I hope that everybody plans on coming next week and for the next few weeks because the pastoral team at Westlight, they've been thinking about this, been praying about this for, for weeks, and we're going to discover who we are together and how we can relate to other people. This is going to be our labyrinth, and we're going to be walking and journeying through it together. Amen? All right, let's pray.